Uh, it comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an, apo an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So we were in South Carolina for the last week visiting with my wife's family and my in-laws own a place in the boondocks of South Carolina. So I mentioned earlier during our prayer time that it's so slow that it's almost like going in reverse. That's how slow the pace is. So it was just this very restful time. But we weren't anticipating it to be really restful because um, Angela's sister had lost her baby. Um, there was some conflict within the family and a company merger. So we're expecting it to just be kind of uncomfortable. And there was this one point where I was sitting on the porch with my father-in-law, with my brother-in-law, um, and my son Emmett came and sat right next to us. And we're just sipping on a beer and Emmett has his root beer. And Emmett is feeling really cool because we're all drinking beer and sitting on the porch together. And we're having this really serious conversation, but Emmett kept interrupting our conversation. And he would say things off the wall that nobody had any idea what he was talking about. Like, hey, you guys, did you know that our last name is Candy? And, and he thinks that's cool because Zach and Lindy's last name is Candy, and apparently he wants our last name to be Candy as well. Um, which was really funny, but I'm like the only one who was like, haha, I get it. And everybody else is like, what do you mean this last name's Candy? Like, the serious moment in a conversation, and then Emma just throws out a zinger. And it got to the point where I really felt like I needed to just lean down and tell Emmett to just hush up, okay? Because we were in this serious conversation, and he just keeps throwing out these weird zingers. And I, I looked at him to tell him to be quiet, and he's just sitting there with his root beer in his lap. And I'm like, this kid, this four-year-old kid, is sitting in this, this circle with adults. He's not off running and playing with his cousins. He's not playing with toys. He's not playing video games. But he is enjoying his time sitting next to his dad. And it was at that moment, it was like just the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And it's like, no, don't, don't ruin this moment. It was like the Holy Spirit said, hush your mouth. When I was going <laughs> to say that, that's not the way the Holy Spirit speaks, by the way. But it was like, I was just told to be quiet. And it was this really interesting moment for me to just look at my son and things just slowed down for me. And I just stared at him like, what he's saying right now is sitting right next to me. It's like, okay, Dad, you know, when we're back in Madison and you have all these other important things that you put before me, like writing a sermon or entertaining guests or talking to mom, we're like, not now, son, not now. I mean, now we're in South Carolina. The pace has slowed down. There's no reason why you can't spend time with me right now. And here I am about ready to tell him to hush up. And the Holy Spirit stopped me. 
And I just listened to him, and I let him interject and interrupt our conversations. And he had so much fun that the next day he asked if we could do it again. So he went and got his root beer and brought it to this little circle. And I said, guys, my son wants to hang out with us. This isn't going to happen very often. We're meeting on the porch. So the guys came together, and we did the same thing again. But here's the point. You know, so often in my life, I have these things that I think are just really important, and I put them ahead of things that are really more important, like spending time with my son, like being a dad to my son. And sometimes we need these moments in our life where we just have the Holy Spirit speak to us and says, you know what, your priorities are out of whack. You need to have your priorities in order. You're going to miss out on something really important because you're putting something less important ahead of where that's supposed to be. You know, when Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he's doing this exact same thing. He's telling them, you know what? Your priorities are out of whack. You need to focus in on what's really important here because you're missing it. Here he had a church in Corinth, and this church is a church that Paul planted, and this was the status of the church in this day. They were quarreling with, with one another. They were talking about like, okay, I, I am better than you because I follow Peter, or I'm better than you because I follow Paul, or I um, follow Apollos, or I follow Christ. And there was division among the church. And Paul uses the first part of Corinthians, and he says, you know, this shouldn't be because the gospel brings unity. The gospel brings unity and community that does not bring division. So I don't know what gospel you're believing, but you're not believing the one that I preached to you. So he reminds them of the gospel. They had sin that was happening in the church, and he spends a, a major portion in the beginning of 1 Corinthians just addressing this. I mean, it was just off the wall. Like, uh, there was this guy who was sleeping with his stepmom, and everybody was like, it's cool, whatever, it doesn't matter. He's like, this can't be, because the gospel won't allow you to be able to do this. You have to speak into this guy's life. What he's doing is not good for him. So he speaks into this and says, you know what? Because of the gospel, your lives will change, and you can't look at the sin in the same kind of way. So he's addressing them, and he reminds them of what is really important in their lives. In chapter 15, he says that what they should really be concerned about is the gospel. Verse 1, I want to, want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Paul just recognizes that the problems that they're having, the division and they're being relaxed about sin is because they're not putting what should be most important in their lives, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he reminds them of the gospel. Now, I wish I could tell you that this is just like a first century problem, right? 2,000 years later, we got this all figured out. I mean, we always have the gospel first in our lives, right? But Apparently, we don't, and, and since I know that I don't have my priorities right in my own life many times, and because Paul writes to the church in Corinth who struggles with this same kind of thing, I'm guessing that, that you do as well. So Paul's words are extremely relevant for us today, reminding us of the gospel. And in verse 3, he says, the gospel is of first importance. The gospel should be the most important thing in your whole life. So what Paul does is he writes to the church of Corinth. He reminds them of the importance of the gospel. He reminds them of the gospel, and he reminds them in three different kind of ways. He says, the gospel you received, the gospel in which you stand, and the gospel in which you are being saved. So we're going to focus on those three things 
this morning, but I'm going to reverse the order, and we're going to start with um, the first point. Because we forget what's truly important, we need to be reminded that the gospel saves. Because we forget what's truly important, we need to be reminded that the gospel saves. There's kind of some tricky language here in verse 2. It says, by which you are being saved. Now, you can look at this and say, okay, we're, we're being saved if we hold fast to the word. And this is where, like, people that, that believe you could lose your salvation would come in and say, okay, look it. We're, we're being saved if we hold fast to the word. So we've got to try really hard and do all the right things, and then in the end, we will be saved. And um, that's just not proper theology of what um, Paul is actually saying in this verse. This verb that he used for being saved, it means to be delivered from danger, but it also implies a restoration to a former state, a state of well-being. Uh, this is the same verb that was used, remember when um, the disciples were in the boat and this huge storm came along and Jesus walks out on the water and, and Peter comes out towards Jesus and then all of a sudden he sees all of the waves and the storm that's around him and he loses his focus on Jesus and he begins to sink. And he uses this, this same uh, verb to be saved, but it's not just saying, Jesus, save me. It's like, save me, but restore me back to my former state of comfort. Like, get me back in the boat. Okay? Bring me to a place of safety. So when Paul uses this, and he's talking about our salvation, we have on one sense that, that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we are absolutely 100% saved because Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He is seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and he is king over all things. That is a guarantee. Our salvation is it's 100%. But at the same time, we're not in heaven, are we? Not yet. We are still in a world where we, we struggle with sin. We're still in a world where you know, the effects of sin is around us all the time. There are people who die. Angela's grandmother just passed away this morning. We lost a niece just a few weeks ago. I mean, the effects of sin are very prevalent in our world today. And even in ourselves, we continue to sin daily, which is why we repent and believe the gospel even more every day. So there's a sense where we are 100% saved, but then there's this also the sense where we are being saved daily from the effects of sin, from even our own sense. But what you can stand upon here is that we are saved in the gospel, that what Jesus did, his work, it saves us 100%. The gospel saves. In verse 3, Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance. This is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to say that he was buried and he rose again in three days according to the Scriptures and then appeared to many eyewitnesses along the way. Um, I want to point out just two like apologetical kind of points that Paul's making in this passage that I think are pretty cool. And the first thing is, is that he brings up eyewitnesses. Paul is saying, I want to remind you of the gospel. You know, if you really believed the gospel, if you didn't believe in vain, if you believe the gospel, you can believe it because Christ died for your sins. He was buried, okay? Only, only a dead person is buried, okay? He was, he was dead, and then he rose again from the dead, and he appeared to many eyewitnesses. If you're not going to believe my testimony about him, 
because he also appeared to me. You can go to any one of these. There's still hundreds of these people that are alive. You can go and ask any of them, and they'll tell you all about seeing the risen Christ as well. The eyewitnesses is a big part of this. But then the second part of that is according to the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures said what would happen. All the Old Testament, you read that and say, you know, what kind of relevance does this have for our lives today? Well, it points to who Jesus is. The gospel is the center of all of scriptures. And, and it's saying that this is according to the scriptures. This is exactly what was supposed to happen. That one day a Messiah would come, a Christ would come, and he would die for our sins. In Isaiah, you see the language of a sheep being led to the slaughter. And this is what you have in Christ Jesus. You have this perfect lamb Although it's not really a lamb at all, is it? It's, it's the Son of God who lives this perfect life and offers this perfect sacrifice. This is all according to the Scriptures. Jesus' death for our sins is according to the Scriptures. And this is of first importance. And Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians 2.2 that when I was with, um, that when he was uh, talking to the church in Corinth and with them, when he was planting this church, he said he claimed to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He doesn't say, well, I, I knew Jesus, okay? I knew Jesus. He says, I knew Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's very important that he recognizes that I, I claim to know nothing else, like everything else paled in comparison except that I knew Jesus and him crucified. This is the first importance. This is the most important thing in my life. Everything else pales in comparison to this. Being saved from our sins because Jesus is crucified, it absolutely changes everything in our entire lives. D.A. Carson, um, who's a famous scholar, he's down, I think he's still down in Trinity in Chicago, and he said, Jesus isn't just an insurance agent who fixes us when we break down. Think about that for a second. Jesus just isn't an insurance agent that breaks us down. He saves us. Jesus saves us. I, I remember my grandma growing up, who was kind of like a spiritual leader. She always had this thing in her car that said, Jesus saves. Everywhere she went was a constant reminder for her that, that Jesus saves. And Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Um, we, we're going through this book study. We're taking a little bit of break, but we'll be back into it next week. And he wrote this about our condition of where we are um, because of sin. And he said, because of sin, we are dead in our sin. We're dead. That's, that's our spiritual condition. We are absolutely dead. There is no pulse in us whatsoever because of sin, but it's as if Christ, when he dies for our sins, he breathes life back into our lungs. We become alive again. We are made alive in Christ Jesus. You were dead because of your sins, but because Jesus died for your sins, you have life again. You have this new life. You are being made new. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are righteous in the eyes of God because you are new creations created in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, and by this gospel, you are being saved. Being saved changes everything. You know, um, when you have a kind of death-defying, when you face death and you have this, this experience, um, for some people, your life can be absolutely changed forever. Sometimes it maybe changes for a couple minutes and then you go right back into living the way that you did before. I remember when I was in youth group, um, when I was young, we went to Tennessee and North Carolina and we were doing this, you know, the rapids thing and the little inner tubes and 
Um, I didn't get in the inner tube, and I couldn't wait for everybody anymore, so I started going down the rapids without the inner tube because the, the rocks were like really mossy, and my feet just kind of slid across, and people were yelling at you like, don't do that, don't do that, and I'm like, this is cool, I got it. Well, as I was going through, my foot slid down in between the rocks, and the current was strong enough and fast enough that it was pushing me forward, and my head was underwater, and I couldn't get my leg out, and I could not pull my body back out, and my face is under the water, and I cannot breathe. And I said, this is it. I'm going to die in this moment right here. And I felt that way for like three seconds until my foot came out. I mean, it was like really quick, but in three seconds, it seems like an eternity of having your head underwater. It wasn't that big a deal. Like, I got out of the water, um, you know, I, I floated to safety and then got out of water, and I thought about it, well, that was a close one. And like two minutes later, I forgot about it. It didn't change my life. But what if I drowned in that moment, and somebody has to pull me from that water, give, resuscitate me, bring me back to life, or what if I'm someone who's sitting on an operating table who is clinically dead and brought back to life again? I mean, that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, it's really hard to have that near-death experience where, like, where you were dead. Not like you were almost dead, but you were dead and you were brought back to life again. I heard this, this story of this woman who had been clinically dead for 20 minutes. Jeff, I have no idea how that even works. She was clinically dead for 20 minutes. Jeff, get up here and tell us how it works. I'm just kidding. <laughs> clinically dead for 20 minutes, and she's resuscitated on the table and brought back to life. And she says now that she never says no to anything. Her life has been radically changed because she sees that life is too short and she's going to live life to the fullest. And she does that and that change happens because she was dead and now she's alive. Her life has been radically changed. This is what being saved by Christ means. You were dead, now you're alive. You were a slave to sin, now you're set free. You were an orphan, now you're a child of God. You were spiritually bankrupt, now you have riches and inheritance. You once had no hope, now you have hope, all the hope in the world because of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the gospel message right there. You were dead, you were dead, and he brought you back to life and didn't just bring you back to life as if he restored you to safety back inside this safe, comfortable boat. He gave you a new life. He created something new. He brought you into something much better than your state before. That's the gospel message right there. You are saved. You are being saved. But sometimes we need to be reminded of that because we get caught up in all this stuff in our peripheral. We start focusing on things that are less important. And Paul says, I want you to remember the gospel. This is the first importance. Remember the gospel because by this gospel, you are being saved. So brothers and sisters, I want you, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you that because of Jesus, you are saved. And that changes everything. So the first thing Paul does is he reminds the readers of the gospel that they're being saved through the gospel. And then secondly, because we forget what's truly important, we need to be reminded to stand in the gospel. The word stand means to hold fast, to be firm, to be permanent, to endure. Um, to stand, if, if you're going to... If you're going to like dig your heels into something, if you're going to make yourself in a stationary position, I mean, there's no better thing to do that than, than in the gospel. 
Paul is saying like, all of your life, like you should be looking through this gospel lens. It, it changes everything. You're standing in the gospel so it affects everything in your entire life. The gospel makes us stand. When Paul speaks to his readers, he's saying that they have forgotten something important. Not only that the gospel saves, but also that we're to stand in the gospel. The gospel is not just a doorway into the Christian faith. The gospel is a pathway we're going to walk on our whole entire lives. The fact that Paul is writing to a church of believers, which he calls brothers, and reminds them of the gospel, tells us that this gospel is not just some simple message that we, we believe and then we just kind of move on to more important things. The gospel is so important that, that we put our faith and our trust in it, and then we keep going back to it over and over and over again because it transforms our life and helps us to stand in this world. Jerry Bridges, who is a major leader and author with the Navigators Ministry, um, he once spoke to a group of hundreds of Christians, and he said, imagine drawing a timeline of your life, and on one extreme end, you have your birth. On the other extreme end, you have your death, and then somewhere in between, you have the cross. That is your conversion. That's the most important dot on, the, on this whole um, line. And he says, if you look at this line, what do you think your greatest need is from the time you were born to the time of your conversion? And everybody in the room says, well, you know, it's, it's the gospel. The gospel is the most important thing. We've got to believe in the gospel. He says, you're right. He says, okay, now go from your conversion to the point of your death. What do you think is your greatest need for your life? And, of course, the, the people in the group are like, well, you know, it's, it's discipleship. Discipleship is the most important thing. And of course, you know, that's the total navigator's answer, right? Discipleship. Um, some said, you know, spiritual disciplines or other things like that. And Jerry Bridges says, you know, that is what I used to believe. He said, I don't believe that anymore. He said, from your birth to conversion, your greatest need is the gospel. From your conversion to your death, your greatest need is the gospel. And he says, not because being a disciple and follower of Jesus is not important, but because it is only by continually going back to the truths of the gospel and believing them to be true and taking them to heart that we water the roots of spiritual growth that enable us to be true followers of Jesus. That's why the gospel is of first importance. We always go back. I mean, if, if we're worshiping something else that's not God, it means we've taken our eyes off of God, we've put them on less important things called idols, and we've given our love and our affection to something that's not God. And going back to the gospel helps us to repent from that, to see that, and go back to believing in the truths of the gospel and our stance and our standing before God in the gospel. If you're here this morning and you've yet to follow Jesus, the greatest need for you here this morning is the gospel. But if you're here and you've already begun to follow Jesus, your greatest need is the gospel. We need to continually go back over and over again and remember um, that we're saved and, and what we're saved from and what it costs God to save us. We need to go back to these truths of God over and over and over again. So brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. It's not just the entryway into the Christian life. It is the Christian life. So focus your eyes and your attention back on the gospel and let that transform your lives. So we looked at Paul reminding us of the gospel. Um, it's what's truly important that we are saved by it, that we stand by it, and then finally 
Paul reminds us, because we forget what's truly important, we need to be reminded that we received the gospel. This is going to seem kind of weird, but you would think that like, you know, the, the grand finale, let's just bring in you are being saved by the gospel, and this is what we should finish with. And I'm, I'm saying that we received the gospel. This is the grand finale. When you receive something, like I, I think we've been watching a lot of football lately, probably too much football, but you have all the bowl games and, and you're getting into um, the playoffs for NFL. But I love it when a wide receiver catches a pass and they like do this huge celebration, you know, they show that they got a first down and, and they, they point at themselves like, look at how great I am. And my thought is, okay, your quarterback hit you right on the numbers. All you had to do is put up your hands and catch it. You get paid millions of dollars to do what you just did that my four-year-old son could probably have caught that pass and you're celebrating like you did something special, right? To receive something means that somebody else delivered it to you. Like if you're a wide receiver, a quarterback delivered that ball to you. You didn't just automatically just come up with this ball. If you get a package in the mail, which I'm sure all of you did during this season, it's because somebody delivered it to you. When you receive the gospel, it means that it has been delivered for you by somebody else. Okay, this isn't something that, that you just did. And okay, if, if I just think really hard that I deserve something, that, that I will just receive this gift and nobody needs to deliver it from me. That's not what the gospel is. You have received it. It has been delivered to you by, by somebody else. Here's what this does. When we think about receiving the gospel, um, it means that, that we have done nothing to earn that. It means we have done nothing to deserve that gospel. It has been delivered to us. The posture of a Christian, and this is any Christian, is humility. Christians should be the absolute most humble people on the planet because the thing that we hold most dear, the essential part of what the church is, the gospel, we did nothing in order to receive that. We added nothing to it. It was all God. It was accomplished in Jesus on the cross, him dying for our sins. And guess what? We, we get to receive it. If you believe in, repent from your sins and believe, we receive this gospel. We should be the most humble people on the planet. Like Christianity is the ultimate participation trophy. You know, if you have any kids that play sports, you know, all you got to do is go out there and play the game and you get this participation trophy, whether you win or you lose, which depending on if you like that kind of thing or not, Christianity is the ultimate participation trophy. You don't do anything. You're just here and Jesus died for you, so you get a trophy. I mean, if that shouldn't lead us to humility, I don't know anything else that will. Christians should be the most humble people on the planet. There's no such thing as a prideful Christian. It's an oxymoron. Pastor Tim Keller, who's up in Manhattan, once said, the gospel is news about what God has already done for you. Rather than instruction and advice about what you are to do for God, in other religions, God reveals to us how we can find or achieve salvation. In Christianity, God achieves salvation for us. We get the salvation. Everything that I talked about, like how important salvation is that we are saved by Jesus Christ. It is all God. We have done nothing to achieve it. It should be a life changer for Christians. We should be the most humble people on the planet because the one thing we hold most dear, we did nothing to accomplish and to receive it. 
you can see this. Um, I mean, Paul must have just been really frustrated with his church in Corinth. If they're having divisions and separating and puffing themselves up because of who they, they follow in Christianity. And you know Paul's addressing this because of the way that he shows his own humbleness in th this process. This is the effect that grace had on Paul's life. When referring to Christ appearing to him, he says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul once persecuted Christians, and he, he found himself the lowliest of the apostles, unworthy of the gospel. And then in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul recognizes that salvation is all God, that it's all by God's grace, this unmerited favor that was delivered for him, and it leads him to humility. It leads him to humility. He recognizes that salvation belongs to God. We forget sometimes that, that our salvation is all God, that this grace, this amazing gift that we have received, we have done nothing to add to it. It's just that, that God loved us and we were separated by sin and he sends his son who lives this perfect life and he dies the death that we deserve to die so that we might live and be reconciled back to him. Grace is absolutely amazing. So brothers and sisters, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of grace because when we live in reflection of what God has done for us and in his grace, we live in this world with great humility because we have done nothing to accomplish salvation. So Paul reminds his readers of the gospel which they received and which they stand and by which they are being saved. I want to tell you, like, I'm not telling you this, like, let's start off the year with this message because, you know what, there's so much division among you guys. Um, you know, some of you say, well, I follow Nate, and some of you say, well, I follow Jeff, and I follow Adam. I, we're not hearing any of that, and I'm really glad for that because that would be really foolish. I'm not telling you this because there's, there's great sin within this congregation that we need to see fixed and that you guys need to be more serious about sin so that we can be more serious about salvation and God's grace. I'm saying that, that this is the time when people make New Year's resolutions. This is the time when we, we change our trajectory for the year of like, you know, well, this is what I would like to do this year. This is how I would like to live. These are the goals I'm going to set for myself. And I think if we're going to be a Christ-centered church and revolutionize this city, it's going to happen through the gospel. That's the only way it's going to happen is through the gospel. So I think this is the appropriate message to preach at the beginning of the year. Remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves of what Paul says is the most important thing on the planet because what we do is we will get caught up with all these other things that are less important and miss out on the one thing that is most important. So focus on the gospel. Let that transform your lives so that you might become a new creature, more like Christ every single day. But then there's a second part to it. Not only does the gospel need to remain center in our lives, but the gospel needs to be preached and proclaimed. The very nature of the gospel is good news, which means that it has to be proclaimed. 
It is good news. You can't have good news and not share it. Good news, by its very nature, must be proclaimed. And Paul says here three times in this section, says this, this very thing. In verse 1, the gospel I preached to you. In verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul says, I received this good news from somebody else. I didn't get it myself. Or I didn't attain it myself. Somebody delivered it to me. And then I preached it to you, and you received this same gospel. And then in verse 11, he says, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. The gospel must be proclaimed. The gospel must be delivered. The gospel must be preached. The gospel must be lived out. The gospel is good news that must be shared. By the very nature of the gospel, it has to be shared with other people. We can't just keep this good news to ourselves. So as we come into this new year, you know, you can be transformed by the gospel by focusing on it, making it the most important thing. But you've got to expect that if you do that, it's going to make you proclaim the gospel. It's going to change your heart in a way that is just going to flow from your lips, that you're going to live in a different way when you're around other people. It is going to make you preach. And I know that some of you are like, no, 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 it's not going to make me preach. Well, you're going to proclaim it. You're going to live it out in some other kind of way that God has gifted you in then. Because the gospel will do that. It will change your life and change your heart so that this good news overflows from your heart and overflows into every area of your life because that's what the gospel does. And we proclaim the gospel, this good news, so that others might receive, stand in, and be saved by it as well. So let me just say, I mean, I've said it many times before, but let me remind you of the gospel. This is of first importance. May we be Christ-centered, gospel-centered people who live our lives in a different kind of way so that others might be affected by this gospel as well. Let me end with, um, later on in this, this same chapter in verse 58, I'm not going to read this out of the NIV. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you and we thank you so much that you have given us this good news in Jesus Christ. We admit that we have done nothing to earn this grace. We have done nothing to deserve this grace. But by unmerited favor, you have given us this awesome gift of your son defeating sin, of freeing us from bondage to sin so that we might really live. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this grace. Help us never to forget this good news of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.